Good afternoon. Trivia is once a day. It's a very special thing. Yeah. Too much of a good thing, you know, you're going to wear it out. So, all right. All right. Thank you, and uh, have a good lecture. Can you all hear me? Good. Um, for the next 50 minutes, we're going to talk about cough, and particularly about chronic cough. I think this is a, a really good subject to talk about because from a primary care physician standpoint, it's the fifth most common reason a patient comes into a primary physician's office. And in my practice as a pulmonologist, probably 20% of my patients have chronic cough. So I think that no matter what discipline you go into in medicine, you're going to probably come up against chronic cough. I have uh, a number of objectives today. I'd like to start with talking about the anatomy of the cough reflex. I'd like to focus on alarm symptoms because those are the symptoms that sort of move you to move a little quicker and to do a more extensive workup. After you, uh, after you eliminate the alarm symptoms and work those patients up, then you subdivide the rest of the patients into whether the cough is acute, subacute, or chronic. And we'll talk about that. And then we'll describe the key elements of the history because the history is going to be very important in terms of categorizing cough and deciding what kind of management strategies you will need to develop. And then we'll talk about some of the laboratory tests that are available. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about treatment. So why do we cough? And I think the Probably the, the big reason is we're going to remove anything that's been aspirated down into the trachea. Um, you know, when I was a medical student, I, I can remember um, sucking on the back of a Bic pen. And if you remember, there's a little black or blue thing that sits in the back, and suddenly I, I aspirated that down into my lungs. And I can tell you that there are receptors down in the trachea. I, I coughed and coughed, and when I expelled that, you can, when you actually generate a cough, they say that you, it generates at about somewhere between 300 and 500 miles an hour. And I nearly poked out the eye of a fellow classmate when it came. But, so I can tell you there, there, uh, there are receptors in the lung. Cough can be voluntary or involuntary. About 2% of people with psychiatric illnesses can cough, and it's, it's totally uh, uh, voluntary. The thing I'd like to spend a little time on are the components of a cough reflex. And what you'll see there, there's sort of this, this, uh, this reflex that, that occurs that is instituted by a, the cough receptors. Now, the cough receptors are, have to be either irritated or stretched, but once they're irritated or stretched, then you'll have the pathways up the afferent nerves up to the brain, and there's sort of a poorly defined medullary cough center, and then it goes back down the efferent nerves down to the effector muscles, which include the diaphragms and the intercostals and, and several other muscles. Although this slide is very busy, I, I think it's important for two reasons. We're going to talk almost the whole lecture about sort of the clinical aspects of how do you define cough, but whenever I get to the end of sort of my, my clinical history and all the different things I'm going to teach you, 
If I don't know the answer, I always come back to the anatomy. And so you always have to have something that sort of, that sort of uh, bases you if you, if you run out of, out of uh, clinical clues. And I think the receptors are probably the important thing. I think if you look at the first group of receptors, um, the larynx, the trachea, the bronchi, bronchi, I mean, you'll just have to take my word that when you get a big pen part down in your lungs that you'll cough. If, if you ever clean your ears, you know that you'll almost always cough. If you, when I do a thoracentesis and the lung re-expands after you've pulled fluid out of the pleural space, the patients always cough. So I know that there are cough receptors in the pleural. I don't know if I, I believe that there are cough receptors in the stomach, but I'll just have to believe that. I know that if, if you um, blow your nose or if you're, if you're doing any kind of work in ENT in the nose, people cough. If I put a bronchoscope through the nose down in the trachea as I go through the nose, people cough. The paranasal sinuses, if you're an ENT and you put a needle into the paranasal sinus, or in the sciences to do bacterial cultures, the patients all cough. In the pharynx, if you're ever looking in the back of the throat, if you get the tongue blade back too far, they either gag or cough. So I know that there are receptors there. And the most interesting are the pericardium and the diaphragm. Um, I recently had a, a patient that had an intractable cough, and this poor woman coughed about 60 times an hour. And, and it just continued, and we did sort of the workup for cough and found nothing. We d she had ascites from an ovarian carcinoma. And when we actually ended up doing a CT of the lung because we had sort of run out of, of diagnostic possibilities, we found that there was a pericardial effusion. And when we did the, the pericardial tap, there were obviously, it was a malignant pericardial effusion from her ovarian carcinoma, the most interesting thing is that when we took out a liter of fluid from around the heart, her cough stopped instantly. So I now know that there really are cough receptors in the pericardium and also the diaphragm. Now once you stimulate these receptors by your, either this irritation or stretching, then they travel up the afferent pathways. And I, I think it's, it, it makes sense that the that the, that the receptors that are in the lung or, or in the uh, pleura would, would move up the vagus, that those in the nose and the parasinuses would move up the trigeminal, and the pharynx, the glossopharyngeal, and then the pericardium, the phrenic. And then they go to this, this medullary center, and then after that's, it's, it's uh, coordinated, then it comes back down the afferent pathways, exactly the sort of the reverses that went up the vagus, the phrenic, the trigeminal, and the hypoglossal pharyngeal. And so then it stimulates those muscles then that are the effector muscles that help you generate a, a good cough. You, know, you ha almost always I think about the receptors, but every once in a while when I see a patient that has a cough, um, every once in a while you find out that it, you're irritating either the afferent pathway or the efferent pathway. So I, I once saw a patient that every time they looked up at the clock, they coughed, and it turned out that, that, that they had a huge osteophyte, in, in, and it was actually pushing on either the phrenic or the, or the vagus, and so that uh, removed the osteophyte, and then the cough went away. So you have to think not only receptors, but the afferent and efferent pathways, and where are they? So how do we cough? 
th these are sort of the phases of cough. You have to be able to take a deep breath to generate a cough. And probably the best example of this is in the post-surgical patient who has difficulty developing a cough because they just can't take a deep breath without getting pain. Or I would say put a straight jacket on any one of you and try to generate a cough. It's impossible. Another thing is that people that have had neck trauma have a lot of problems with pneumonias because they can't clear their secretions because they can't generate a cough because they've lost their uh, intercostal muscles and they're working just off their, their phrenic nerve and their diaphragm. So you have to be able to take a deep breath and then you have to compress that against a closed glottis and then once you do that, then you can generate the kinds of pressures and, that you need to expel the mucus. So it, to, to generate a good cough, you have to have everything intact, you have to have good inspiration, be able to compress it against a glottis, and then you ha must have the, um, the expiratory uh, airways so that you can then expectorate it. So what, are, what is the history that you need to obtain when you're taking the, the, uh, the, your history from the, uh, from the patient? And, um, this is probably one of the most important things because if I don't have a pretty good idea what's going on in terms of cough by the time I get my history, I'm usually in, in trouble. And, and of all these things, probably what happened at the onset of this cough? Was there a viral infection? Did they have an exposure to an environmental irritant? I mean, what were the circumstances that, that uh, surrounded that onset? And then probably next is the, the duration is going to be very important because we're going to separate it into this acute, subacute, and chronic, and that helps you sort of uh, narrow your differential. Um, the frequency is, is good just to know if you're making progress as you're, as you're treating the patient. Associated symptoms are, are going to be very important, particularly those that have to do with asthma. And then, and then the precipitating or alleviating factors, what makes it better, what makes it worse, are always really good. And then whether it's changing in frequency over time. As you're getting this history, there are a few alarm symptoms that, that really help you to, to, to uh, develop your differential. And it really helps you to decide who you're going to move on to get an x-ray or a CT and get some extra studies. Um, in a very timely basis. So for instance, if a patient um, presents with cough and hemoptysis, particularly if they're a smoker, you're going to think about lung cancer. If they have, have cough and hemoptysis and fever and wasting and tuberculosis, particularly if they've traveled um, from outside the country, you always have to worry about pulmonary embolus because that's a uh, sort of an acute event that kills people quickly. And then obviously we're trying to eliminate pneumonia. If you have cough with fever and purulent sputum, you know, that's really the infectious thing. So you're thinking about pneumonia or a lung abscess. If you have cough with wheezing and shortness of breath, then you're thinking more about asthma, COPD, exacerbation, and maybe heart failure. You know, it's interesting that um, in heart failure, um, what happens is that if you get a backup of fluid in the lungs and the interstitium get wet, it stretches the cough receptors and so people cough, and in fact, they actually have a name for that called um, cardiac asthma. And so uh, you, you, it could either, and with asthma, about 15% of patients only cough. So you just have to keep that in your differential, particularly 
in someone that has a history of heart disease or in an elderly patient. Cough with chest pain. If it's pleuritic chest pain, you have to think about pulmonary embolism. If it's, if it's uh, more that, that uh, sense that there's substernal uh, dullness and that maybe radiates to the, to the sh left shoulder or to the neck, you think about angina. Um, cough with excessive chronic sputum production. Um, if you have fevers and wasting or you have someone that has a history of seizures or an alcoholic, you always have to worry about a lung abscess, particularly if the sputum that's being produced is foul tasting and has a bad smell. And then if, if they have bronchiectasis, they'll tell you that they cough up over a cup of sputum per day. And if they actually put it in a glass, it actually tri-layers and they'll be able to tell you that. Um, lung cancer. There's one lung cancer type that has voluminous sputum production, and that's the bronchoalveolar cell, and they'll produce over a cup of sputum per day. Um, cough with unintentional weight loss, again, you have to worry about lung cancer, TB, and a lung abscess, and then cough with dyspnea and lower extremity edema, again, heart failure and, and pulmonary embolus. If you have any of these alarm symptoms, then you have to move on a little quicker and you're, you're going to work up the patient with a chest x-ray, CT, perhaps an echo, and, and things like this. Once you've eliminated the alarms, then you're sort of back to step one, and this is estimate the duration of the cough, and because this really narrows your list of diagnostic possibilities. And so this is the time frame I want you to remember. Um, if it's less than three weeks, you're dealing with acute. If it's three to eight weeks, it's subacute. And if it's greater than eight weeks, then it's chronic. And the reason this is important is the differential is totally different for each of these. So let's start with the um, acute cough, less than three weeks. The ideologies would be predominantly an upper respiratory tract infection of some kind. So this could be the common cold. It could be acute bacterial or viral sinusitis. If you have pertussis in the community, then you have to worry about pertussis. If you have a patient that's a COPD, -er, it would, might be an, an exacerbation of their COPD. On the other hand, if it's seasonal or if it, if it seems to be with exposure to something that has caused allergic rhinitis or rhinitis, you have to at least consider that you're dealing with an, sort of an allergic diathesis. And then also by history, there are a number of occupational and environmental irritants um, that, that people get exposed to. And it's just simply getting a good history to find out uh, what they've been exposed to. Your real goal during this three weeks is to eliminate the real serious things, which are pneumonia, congestive heart failure, asthma, and aspiration. And, and I just would caution you that when you have an older person that has had a cough for less than three weeks, you should just automatically think about aspiration because as people get older, their ability to, to uh, control their, their mouth secretion seems to become impaired and they're certainly more likely to get congestive heart failure. So if you look at the upper respiratory tract infections, 70% of them tend to be viral. And sometimes your history can sort of separate out which, which viral things you're talking about. I think the only, only one that really makes a difference is if you have influenza A or B. And if you have influenza A or B, then you, there are at least there are some medications that can either 
decrease the, the length of the illness or actually ameliorate the symptoms. But for most of the time, it's, it's, you're talking about uh, just the, the routine viral upper respiratory tract, the common cold. And in that case, there, there's not um, a lot that can be done. The good news is that it almost always goes away. But, but I think what you can do is you can accelerate that a little bit. Um, we used to try the, the uh, non-sedating antihistamines, and it turns out that they don't work so well. So you have to go back to the ones that are sedating if you're going to treat the, the uh, cough or common cold. And there's, they, these are things like DimeTap. And I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're older medicines that are very cheap. I think they're one cent a piece. So you know, if you can, uh, um, you can get them. Um, there's some studies in children which have, have looked at using naproxen and as also as, as, as providing some decrease in the cough. The one exception would be that if you have a good history for allergic rhinitis, you'd obviously try to avoid the allergen, and this would be a case when you could use the non-sedating antihistamines. Pneumonia, which is the third most common cause of an acute cough, only occurs about 5% of the time. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's the common cold and the viruses that really make the, the big difference. But your goal here is to, is to make sure that you don't miss a pneumonia. And so the practice in the past was always to get a chest x-ray on every patient. What they've shown now is that if your vital signs are normal and you do a careful physical exam where you're listening for crackles or egophony and, and, and uh, feeling for a change in fremitus, that if you don't have any of those findings, you don't need to do a chest x-ray and you don't have pneumonia. Pulmonary embolism is certainly a less likely cause of cough, except it, the consequences of a pulmonary embolism are, are so um, extreme that it's important to, to diagnose them. And usually you'll have a history of recent immobilization or, or surgery or a malignancy that would set someone up for, for pulmonary embolism. In the great majority of cases, you can just treat them symptomatically or do nothing and just wait for the cough to improve. There are some exceptions, and these would be the exceptions where you might consider using an antibiotic. So let's say that the, your patient had a good history for a, an upper respiratory tract infection that was probably um, a, a virus. They had itchy eyes and rhinitis as well as the, the cough. and uh, you, you had treat, treated them um, symptomatically, and at the end of seven days, all of a sudden, the, the uh, rhinitis now, instead of being clear, is purulent, and they're starting to have some facial pain over the sinuses, and it may radiate into the teeth or into the forehead, and uh, um, you have to start thinking about a secondary bacterial infection. So just remember that viruses knock back your immunity, and then once your immunity is knocked back, then you're more susceptible to colonization and, and uh, superinfection with bacteria. Um, if a patient is a smoker, has been a smoker, and has a history of chronic bronchitis, you have to worry about are they having an exacerbation of their COPD. Nick Antoninson, who is at the University of Chicago, did some elegant studies where he took people that had COPD, and if they had three symptoms, if they had cough, increasing shortness of breath, and the sputum was purulent, 
he could show that if you treated with an antibiotic, you really made a difference. You decrease the number of hospital days, decrease the number of days of the illness, decrease the chances of going into an ICU, decrease the number, the chances that you'd go on a ventilator. So it was probably a worthwhile thing to give that group of patients an antibiotic. When you have two of those three symptoms, it's sort of 50-50, you can take your choice. And if you only had one, then it probably didn't add much. Um, obviously, if, if there's pertussis in the community and, and the patient has this coughing that's a, a bark and they cough in salvos till it goes to uh, vomiting and, and you would culture them um, for pertussis or you think that they are a good candidate for pertussis, that would be some, someone that you'd treat with antibiotics. And then obviously those patients that have abnormal vital signs or, or auscultation findings that would suggest a pneumonia, that would be a good uh, a group of patients to treat. All right, so that's the acute case. I think the thing to take away on the acute is that almost all viral, and they usually get, get better. Um, you just have to rule out the, the more um, acute things. The etiologies of the subacute cough, um, they almost all are post-infectious cough or cough variant asthma. So you, uh, almost always you'll get a history of a previous viral infection and that uh, they had sore throat and low-grade fever, myalgias, and that seemed to get better, but the cough just has hung on forever. Um, you also have to worry about pertussis, and then the secondary infection with bacterial sinusitis, and then asthma. So post-infectious asthma almost always begins with a re upper respiratory tract infection and almost always resolves without treatment, Although I think people get frustrated because sometimes it's, if, it, if the cough lasts for three weeks, they think it'll never go away. It almost always is gone by six months, but you can kind of speed this up if you, uh, if you do a, a, a few things. So think about if someone has just a mild cough, you might try some inhaled ipotropium, which is an anticholinergic. If it's moderate impairment, we'll sometimes use inhaled corticosteroids. If it's severe impairment, then sometimes a course of steroids will, uh, of oral corticosteroids will, will help. And if nothing seems to be working, always remember you can suppress the cough. In some patients, after you've been coughing for a long time, coughing begets coughing. And so sometimes if you can just shut the cough off, sometimes that people will get better. What I see as a pulmonologist is almost always chronic cough. So the patients have been screened, they've either gotten better or they've, uh, it's continued, and now we're beyond eight weeks. And so we've got to think of a, of a, of a different differential. And what you'll see here is that um, upper airway cough syndrome, which was previously called post-nasal drip, is, is the most common cause of a chronic cough, 34% of the patients. You'll see that asthma, accounts for 28%. Gastroesophageal reflux, about 18%. And then you have some things like chronic bronchitis from cigarette smoking or from environmental irritants, um, bronchiectasis. I don't think I've ever seen eosinophilic bronchitis, but it's always on the list. And then something that, because we're using so many of the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, um, in, in uh, heart failure and hypertension, we're starting to see 
this more frequently. Keep in mind that multiple causes may occur simultaneously. So it's not uncommon to have a patient with two or three of, of these factors that are causing the cough. But what I want you to remember is that the, the one that is most likely is actually post-nasal drip. There are a number of other things that you have to worry about, like lung cancer, carcinomatosis, sarcoidosis, left ventricular failure, chronic aspiration, granulomatous disease, broncholithiasis, where you have a lymph node that's eroding into a, an airway, and interstitial lung disease. But these usually will become, become uh, um, more evident as, as your workup goes on. I think that um, what you want to think about is that if you take the patients that are smoking and that have chronic bronchitis and you take them out, and then you take the, the patients that have the ACE inhibitors out, you're left with a group that 90% are going to be either this upper airway, cough syndrome, asthma, or GERD. And that's what I really want you to take away of, is that uh, that's going to be your, your, your big group. Okay, let's talk about the upper airway cough syndrome first. It was, as I mentioned, it previously was caused post-nasal drip, but we got, that would, you'd say, you'd always write PND, and then people would think you were talking about paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, so they've decided that now they're going to call it uh, upper airway cough syndrome. Um, up to 20% of patients will not know that they're actually having drainage. So you can, you can look in the back of the throat on physical exam, you can see, see secretions draining down and the patient may not be aware. But that tells you that 80% of people will um, be able to tell you that they have, have drainage. Usually they feel a tickle in their throat or they have some hoarseness or they're constantly clearing their throat. Oftentimes with, with post-nasal drip, since it's oftentimes draining from the sinuses, what will happen is that as the person changes position, that uh, one of the sinuses will drain and they'll get it. So it's not uncommon that when they go to bed and they lie back, they'll get a cough, or when they get up in the morning and start moving about, that uh, they'll get cough. If you, on your physical exam, if you look back, you'll sometimes see irritation of the lymphatics that give you sort of a cobblestone appearance to the uh, mucosa in the, in the back of the, uh, of the pharynx. The differential is going to be, always worry about allergic. Um, not, there are some non-allergic things. Um, Post-infectious, the vasomotor rhinitis, where it just, they just get rhinitis and it drains, or chronic sinusitis. And again, the treatment for this is predominantly the sedating antihistamines with pseudoephedrine. And if, no, if you don't get a response, then you should think about getting a CT just to see if there's a fluid level that isn't isn't draining. The second most common, which was 28%, was cough variant asthma. And this is really a, sort of a carryover somewhat from the subacute where you've had a viral illness and then what happens is that uh, you end up getting uh, um, symptoms related to things that you're in, in either in, in inhaling or you're smelling in the environment. So um, it could be seasonal. It's oftentimes worse when, you're, when they're walking in cold air or in the wind, sometimes with exercise. 
And um, the interesting thing is that somewhere between 5 and 15% of people with asthma only cough. So you, you, be, the fact that they don't wheeze doesn't, doesn't mean that they don't have asthma. And usually we diagnose this with spirometry. So what you would do under this case, you'd get screening spirometry. If their flows were abnormal, you would repeat post-bronchodilators. And if you, if you got a 12% improvement with at least 200 cc's, you'd say that they have an obstructive ventilatory de defect consistent with asthma. And in most asthmatics, it's, you have bronchoreactivity, so they do respond to a bronchodilator. For those individuals that have normal spirometry, you, you can use a perturbation test like, like um, using methacholine. And if, if I gave any of you that don't have asthma methacholine, what you would see is you'd see a little drop in, in, in lung function, particularly looking at the FEV1, but you wouldn't drop below 20% of what's, what's normal. Um, so, um, so if you go from 100% to 80%, that's normal. When you go past that, then, then uh, um, you would say that you have bronchoreactivity. And most of the patients that you test with this, they will, you will exacerbate their cough. And so you'll, you'll want to emulate the symptoms that they're describing for you with the methacholine, as well as seeing the flow rates drop. Normally, what you'll see is that we, we start with a very low dose of methacholine and then keep increasing the dose. And usually within sort of four doses, you'll get the response. Almost everybody, if you continue to give a number of doses, would get some reaction to the methacholine because it's very irritating. But if, if, you, if you have that 20% decline and you do it within four or five doses, almost everyone will have asthma. And obviously then if you diagnose asthma, then you know that the, your patient may respond to inhaled corticosteroids. You could use a long or short-acting beta agonist. You could try a leukotriene uh, receptor antagonist like Singular. Um, or you could use, um, um, and then patients that are refractory, you might even try a one or two week course of, of uh, oral prednisone or corticosteroids. Gastroesophageal reflux, I think, is the real sleeper here because 76% um, of patients, or 75% of patients, won't um, recognize that they're having gastroesophageal reflux. If they do recognize it, the two symptoms will be heartburn and occasionally they'll have hoarseness. And again, this oftentimes occurs when, you, um, when people go to bed at night and then they have cough and then um, just because they, they now no longer have gravity to keep the contents of the stomach in the stomach and they'll reflux. Um, and this, this can be that they either are refluxing that acid all the way up and dumping on the vocal cords which have cough receptors or into the trachea which has cough receptors or simply you're stimulating a vagal reflex by dumping gastric acid into the lower esophagus. And there's really nothing on, on uh, physical exam. If you, if you actually would look at the vocal cords, sometimes you'll see retin, a retinoid mucosa if that acid is coming all the way up and spilling on the on the vocal cords. You know, the, the gold standard for this is to take a, a tube with a pH meter and put it through the nose and then 
and then under fluoroscopy, you put it just above the stomach, and, you, and then you fasten down and leave it for 72 hours, and then you have the patient keep a diary of every time they cough, and then you correlate that with, with whether pH is going down in the lower esophagus, and, uh, and, and obviously if you can see every time they cough there's a spill of acid into the lower esophagus, you can make your diagnosis. Um, most of my patients don't want to have a tube down for 72 hours to their nose, and, and so um, we've sort of, on, on this, if, if this is what you think or this is what you're trying to treat, it turns out that you can use anti-reflux therapy um, much easier than the di doing the diagnostic test. So oftentimes what we'll do is we'll tell the patients just to elevate the head of the bed with a cinder block or with um, a telephone book and then uh, avoid certain dietary things, particularly at night. And just always remember, anything that tastes good is what you're going to tell your patient to eliminate. Um, you'll see there's chocolate. I mean, everything I like, coffee, tea, soft drinks, alcohol, chocolate and fatty foods all have an effect on that lower esophageal, uh, gastroesophageal junction so that it loosens it up so you can reflux acid up into the lower esophagus. So the easiest way is either to use the H2 blockers, and most of us use the protein pump inhibitors because they're so effective. The one caveat I would tell you is that when you use the protein, proton pump inhibitors, that um, two-thirds of patients um, need twice a day rather than the standard once-a-day therapy um, just because it just doesn't last long enough. So if you're trying to treat someone with cough, just I usually start twice a day regimen rather than the standard once a day because uh, of that uh, two-thirds that it doesn't last 24 hours and if it breaks through then they start coughing again. The ACE inhibitors are, are interesting in that anywhere from 5 to 35 percent of patients that are treated with ACE inhibitors will have a cough. And um, of the patients that I see with chronic cough, probably around 3 percent um, are on um, ACE inhibitors. It's a class effect and is, and is not dose dependent. I, I would tell you that the cough is different than what on people with ACE inhibitors. It's a dry cough and it, it just continues and oftentimes uh, you know, all day long they, they cough and it's, it's uh, very bothersome. It's a hacking um, paroxysmal cough where they'll have salvos of cough, sometimes um, even to the point of vomiting. It occurs from hours to months after the first dose. And the interesting thing is that when you take people off the ACE inhibitors, it, it takes time for the cough to go away. Even though it's a bradykinin effect and you'd think that it would go away quickly, sometimes it takes four weeks for the, the cough to get better. I, I would say that most patients when you stop within a week, they're significantly better, but uh, it can take up to three months for resolution. I don't think there's any reason to re-challenge the patient, mainly because you can use an angiotensin receptor blocker if you, uh, as an alternative, and it doesn't seem to have the same effect as, the, uh, as the, just the inhibitor. Chronic bronchitis is probably one of the most common uh, causes of chronic cough just because we, have, we still have 18 or 20 percent of people still smoking 
And so it's sort of that, that uh, old definition of chronic bronchitis where you have to at least produce a significant amount of sputum for three months uh, for at least two years. And you have to remember that this, you can have chronic bronchitis because of either active or passive smoking. And don't forget about occupational exposures. In Iowa, there are two main occupational exposures that give you chronic bronchitis. One is working in hog confinement, and the second is working in a grain elevator. And that's, those are probably the two main occupational exposures. So your treatment can simply be to avoid exposure. If you have someone that's, that's very sensitive to the... Uh, um, in, in hog confinement, you can have them wear a mask, and they have canisters that will filter. It's a little uncomfortable, and it's, it gets hot in the summertime. Um, the other thing is just to avoid the exposure. Um, if you take someone out of, of uh, exposure or you have them discontinue their smoking, 90 to 94 percent of the cough resolves after cessation. It sometimes takes four weeks or longer for it to resolve, mainly because you've You've, you've sort of irritated the cough receptors, and in addition, you've, uh, the mucus glands are over-secreting, so you're having a lot of mucus that's irritating the cough receptors, and it just takes time for that to resolve. You can, you can help the patient a little bit during that one or two months where the cough is resolving by giving them a beta agonist if they have dyspnea, and ipotropium is a drying agent as well as dilating the airways and so uh, inhaled ipotropium can sometimes help. So how would we put this all together? Okay? So first of all, I want you to think about cough, and then we look at the alarm symptoms. So fever, prearrogant sputum, a productive cough, wheezing and shortness of breath, hemoptysis, persistent wheezing, chest pain, unintentional weight loss. Then you're going to have rapid evaluation. You're going to get a chest x-ray, and you're going to move on to whatever needs to be done. And then after that, you're going to say, what's the duration of, of this cough? Is it less than three weeks? Is it three to eight weeks? And is it, is it eight weeks? If it's less than three weeks, I want you to think upper respiratory tract infection. And you're going to use your history, physical exam, and uh, particularly, the, in this case, um, you probably won't do a chest x-ray if, if everything is normal to rule out serious medical conditions like pneumonia or congestive heart failure. If you have subacute, you're going to think post-infectious asthma. You're going to think pertussis, bac uh, a bacterial sinusitis as a complication of a viral infection, and maybe you've just, you've just uh, revved up previous asthma. And, and you can also do sort of the same workup that you would do with chronic cough. And then finally, if the cough lasts for over eight weeks, then what I would suggest is if they're smokers, get them off the cigarettes and, and stop the cigarettes. If they work in a grain elevator in hog confinement, either get them out of that or give them a mask to protect them from what they're inhaling. And once you get rid of those, then you can start thinking about the, the big three, as I call it. That would be the upper airway cough syndrome, asthma, and GERD. So um, if, if they improve with smoking, you're done. If it was smoking cessation, you're done. If you take them off the ACE inhibitor and they get better, you're done. And the same way, if, if, you, if they tell you that they have post-nasal drip, I would focus on the post-nasal drip. 
If they don't get better, then you can investigate them for asthma or for GERD. And if, if you do all those evaluations and everything comes out negative, then you have to think about the, the things that are a little, little uh, uh, more obscure, and you might get a CT, you might do a little more testing to looking for the things that, are, that happen less frequently. So I wanted to give you a case, and, and let's just think about this for a second. And this is group participation. So uh, we'll do it by consensus. So this is a 50-year-old female with a one and a half year of cough. The cough is intermittent, but paroxysmal. It awakens her at night, and it's so severe that she has urinary incontinence with the cough. It's often a dry cough, but occasionally productive. She's the, your typical patient that has hypertension, type 2, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia. She's on lisinopril, gliburide, and, and atrovastin. And she's on the, uh, her social history, she's a non-smoker and a homemaker. She has occasional heartburn, occasional wheezes, and she has normal nasal mucosa on physical exam. And when I listened to her, she had clear lungs. And in this case, she got a chest x-ray before coming, and it was normal. So this is a, this is a very typical type patient that I would see in, in my uh, pulmonary clinic. So what is the most likely cause of cough in this patient? Hmm? So you'd worry about an ACE inhibitor? We all agree on that? It's, it's probably multifactorial. Okay, because if we go back, let's go back and see. She had, um, she, she's on the ACE inhibitor. She's got heartburn, okay, and occasionally wakens her at night. Okay, so this could be multifactorial. What is the, the next best single intervention? I think you, you, uh, you, uh, you all said when you were saying that there was the ACE inhibitor, that would be the thing that I think everyone would do. They would take her off the ACE inhibitor because, you know, why, why go into a diagnostic workup if, if, uh, um, if it's just simply the uh, reaction to the medication. So we would stop the ACE inhibitor for at least four to eight weeks and reassess the patient. So she returns in eight weeks. She says she has less paroxysms of cough but still having nocturnal symptoms and incontinence. She reports an increase in nasal drainage. She denies any seasonal allergies. What do you suspect and recommend now? So this is probably going to be multifactorial. Hmm? The old post-nasal drip or the upper airway cough syndrome. And that, that makes sense. And how are we going to treat her? Okay, so you try the first generation sedating antihistamines and decongestants. Great. And she calls back in three weeks to say that she's sleeping better, but the cough is only slightly less severe. Now what do we suspect and do next? Could be asthma or it could be, it could be GERD and she had a little heartburn and so, uh, but let's, we want to see whether she has asthma. So you do um, pulmonary functions, and her pulmonary functions were normal. So you do a methacholine challenge, and, uh, and it was normal. And so then what do you do? Okay, 
So then you decide that it, it, we're left with that it must be um, it must be the uh, gastroesophageal reflux. So you block up the head of the bed, tell her not to eat the good foods, and and then uh, and coffee before going to bed. And eight weeks later, her cough is completely better. Are there any questions about uh, about cough? So I guess in, in closing, I would just say that um, take a good history. I'll rule out the alarm things that need quick workup. Then try to divide it into the acute, subacute, and chronic. And then think about the big three for the uh, chronic cough once you've removed smoking and the ACE inhibitors. Okay? Thank you.